Welcome, bienvenue. My name is Beth Notar. I'm one of the co-directors of the Trinity Institute for Interdisciplinary Studies, TIS. And uh, we are co-hosting this with the Leonard E. Greenberg Center for um, Religious Life. Uh, my co-host today will be Professor Mark Silk. Before I turn it over to him to introduce the panel and panelists, just wanted to welcome you and also send condolences to anyone who's lost family, friends, or colleagues during these times. And um, I thank you to all of you who've emailed questions in advance. If you have questions during the panel, you can use the question and answer function. And then um, we'll try to get uh, representative questions to our panelists at the end of the panel. Now I'll turn it over to uh, Professor Silk. Thanks so much, Beth. Uh, delighted to be here. Um, uh, as we, uh, by way of a little bit of introduction, um, Beth and uh, her colleagues at, at TIS uh, were looking around for things to do and uh, among some of the board members and, and uh, I um, made the mistake of saying that I'd just been reading The Plague which I'd never read before, and, uh, and that I thought it might be good to have a discussion about that. And they said, you're nominated to organize a panel. So I, I signed up. Um, this, of course, is a book that many of us have, uh, in the present circumstances, decided to read or reread, as the case may be, some in French, some in some other language. Um, it is by the Algerian French author, Albert Camus, one of the pillars of uh, French literature in the middle of the 20th century, an important figure in French and continental philosophy. Um, and uh, he wrote this book really thinking about, about a French Algerian town, the town of Oran, uh, that um, it had experienced bubonic plague in the 19th century. Um, he began thinking of it as early as 1941, writing that uh, he was working on a book about the redeeming plague. Uh, the book was published in 1947 and almost immediately translated into English and published by Knopf in 1948. Uh, and um, it, uh, it has been taken in various ways. I won't say what they are. We have a distinguished panel here uh, to discuss various of them from their own perspectives. I'm going to do brief introductions, but uh, uh, in the spirit of Zoom, uh, we're going to move quickly. Um, and uh, if you want to look up their CVs at greater length, you can uh, do that uh, uh, afterwards or in real time, whatever you choose. But we're going to begin uh, with Jim Trossel, Professor of Anthropology uh, and uh, a specialist in particular in, in medical anthropology and in Latin America. Uh, we will proceed then with, with Sarah Kipper, who is uh, chair of the Language and Culture Studies Department and a, uh, an expert in 20th century French literature. Uh, we will then proceed to Shane Wagan, who is uh, chair of the philosophy department and works on both ancient and modern continental philosophy. And finally, wrapping up um, with Tamsin Jones, who has done a stint as chair of the Religious Studies Department, works also on uh, ancient uh, theology, that is patristics, um, and particularly on uh, modern uh, Christian theology 
uh, and the theology of suffering. So uh, a wonderful lineup and I'm gonna turn things uh, right over to Jim. Thanks very much, Mark. Um, so I guess I wanna do two things, one fairly quickly uh, and another for the seven or eight minutes that I have. This is an interdisciplinary panel, obviously, so I wanted to talk a teeny little bit about how a medical anthropologist pays attention to disease and then to deal with the issue of how a medical anthropologist takes a novel as the source of ethnographic information. Um, like many of you, I read this book when I was in college. I wrote a 10-page paper on it, which seemed at the time like it was a great treatise and now seems barely like an introduction. Um, but I did enjoy it when I read it, never forgot it, and did also reread it probably in March. Uh, I want to leave you with three points in this talk and a peril. Um, the points are basically that medical anthropologists feel that diseases are part of lived experience. That's, that's how we approach our topic. Uh, it's a common part, a necessary part of being human. All bodies are fragile. We break, we suffer. But how we break, what we break, how we get sick, these things are always influenced by our behaviors and the social and political environment that surrounds us. Um, and we always interpret how we get sick and suffer through cultural filters. It doesn't come to us from the sky. We always create systems also to explain, resolve, or prevent our suffering. That's all things that medical anthropologists do when we look at suffering cross-culturally. Second point, diseases are opportunities to make meaning. They're not just about suffering, they're about making meaning out of suffering. And certainly writing a novel or writing is one kind of cultural productive act that makes meaning out of that suffering. So we're gonna be talking about that. I'll tell you a, a little bit about some of the ways that medical anthropologists have done this. A guy named Robert Murphy in a book called The Body Silent wrote about how important it was to teach through and from the experience of disability. He wrote about progressive paralysis and taking up residence in his head in his book called The Body Silent. Um, about learning through suffering, an anthropologist named Julie Livingston wrote a book about managing cancer in Botswana. The book was called Improvising Medicine, and it's about how practitioners and patients work in systems that don't work and how when that pain of cancer, terminal cancer is ever present, people still make meanings out of their lives. Another anthropologist named Shirley Lindenbaum wrote a book about understanding disease causation in New Guinea. It's called Kuru Sorcery. And it's about kind of an alternative way of thinking about epidemiology, about the distribution and determinants of diseases. It's about what is upon the people and when the foray don't share biomedical uh, terminology or technology? How is it that they make meaning and understand what has befallen them from this disease? So Kuru Sorcery, another book that I commend to your attention, is a different approach from medical anthropologists about this kind of topic. Third point, diseases can be metaphors and are metaphors in addition to horrific uh, biological, uh, neurological, and chemical processes. Tuberculosis makes us, as we say, waste away. STDs are somehow dirty. Um, so, of course, I'm reminded of Susan Sontag's book, Illness is Metaphor, where when she was um, suffering from cancer, living with cancer at the time, 
really concerned about the challenge and the dangers of presenting what she called real illness as a metaphor. She began her essay in this way, published in the New York Review of Books in 1978. Everyone who's born holds dual citizenship in the kingdom of the well and in the kingdom of the sick. Although we all prefer to use only the good passport, sooner or later each of us is obliged, at least for a spell, to identify ourselves as citizens of that other place. So I've studied disease for three decades and experiences of people with an array of both infectious and chronic diseases. Uh, there's certainly a line in medical anthropology that takes diseases as texts to be interpreted, but I actually tend to follow those who mix biology and culture to consider the burden and transmission and symptomatology as well as the meaning of disease. But the peril here is that the ethnographic texts that I'm asked to deal with and that you're asked to listen to and think about is a book of imagined experience based almost entirely on the use as metaphor of bubonic and mnemonic forms of plague. I, I need to say many anthropologists are quite comfortable between this kind of border crossing between what's real and what's imagined behavior. Uh, anthropologist Laura Bohannon, writing under the pseudonym Eleanor Smith Bowen, wrote an anthropological novel called Return to Laughter. Um, Karen Narayan, another anthropologist, wrote a lovely book of ways to think about writing and about Anton Chekhov's writing in particular called Alive in the Writing. These kinds of authors and others like them would argue that an anthropologist and certainly a medical anthropologist have perfectly legitimate interests in considering a novel as a source of ethnographic data. So what kind of ethnographic data does this novel contain? I'm afraid Camus doesn't do so well as an ethnographic author. He describes populations either in very broad sweeps, things like, quote, our townsfolk apparently found it hard to grasp what was happening to them, close quote, or very detailed accounts and sermons and speeches and thoughts of primary characters like Ryu Taru, Grand, Penelou, Rambert, the old man, the prefect. So this is relatively weak ethnography. There is one thing that I think Camus does ethnographically very well, um, and we see these things in our own news media portrayal of COVID, thinking about how reactions of the populace to the disease itself change through time. Uh, he divides the book into five sections. An early section, people are wrapped in themselves. They disbelieved in pestilences. A second section, the town is quarantined. Now the plague was the concern of all of us brought us exile. People found it hard to grasp what was happening to them. Nobody as yet had really acknowledged what the disease connoted. These are statistics that nobody ever troubles much about. Public lacked standards of comparison. The disease then gets called, or sorry, uh, Ryu calls the town a necropolis. Distress was coming, vast despondency, though not resignation. Part four, exhaustion but hope, a serum is created. Part five, the golden age of health was secretly awaited. The disease seemed to be leaving unaccountably. So um, I'll close by saying that I think that Camus does a fairly good job in thinking about the reactions of the populace to the disease, whether it's metaphor or reality. I think he accurately and sometimes startlingly well portrays the reactions and the changing reactions of the populace to the disease in ways that to us as modern readers seem um, quite relevant and opposite and almost frighteningly uh, familiar. Um, but I'll close just by saying that the main thing that Camus is doing 
is writing a book of philosophy expressed in images, as he said it himself. So he's really much more interested in the values that people are expressing in combating the disease. Bearing witness against implacable and inhuman affliction, finding fellowship, creating solidarity, resisting alienation and solitude. It's bound to leave traces in people's hearts. So I would say for me, the major lessons of this book, as the author intended it, is that we have to each in each generation relearn, relive, and reteach the values that we are encountering in the face of this present epidemic. So I would leave you with that note and turn to the next person. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Jim. And we'll, uh, with a five seconds of reflection, turn now <laughs> to Sarah for, uh, for the next perspective. Thanks, Mark. Um, so in the context of French literary studies, the plague is, of course, one of the most studied and celebrated novels of the 20th century. It was an instant bestseller when it was published in 1947. Within the first three months that it came out in France, it had sold nearly 100,000 copies. And so, of course, World War II was a very recent memory for the French at this time, and it was clear to them just how much the novel was an allegory of their wartime experience. Um, and not just of World War II generally, but specifically of the resistance to the German occupation. Um, so in this allegorical reading, the plague is this external threat of fascism. It's the unjust murder of fellow citizens. And you have characters in the novel who represent the choice that was facing many French people at the time, whether you form part of the resistance as Camus did and as characters in the novel like the Dr. Rieux or Tarou or Grand do, or whether you collaborate with the German occupation. And the best example of that in the novel is the character of Cotard who really benefits from the situation of the plague. So one of the things that really struck me um, rereading the novel now is how much this allegorical reading kind of falls away. And only once you're living through a pandemic do you realize Contrary to what Jim is saying, I, I, the ethnographic data, I have absolutely no idea, but how, many asto how astonishing is how many details Camus gets right about the lived experience of being through a plague. And so, you know, the question that he talks about, about um, how quickly authorities will or will not recognize the situation that is right before their eyes. And at one point in the novel, he talks about um, how you'd think disease would be an equalizer um, that would affect everybody indiscriminately, but that in fact, it does not. Um, and that, uh, uh, that it is something that you, that points a vast inequities about who gets sick and who doesn't get sick. Um, so the novel resonates now because it seems to point up, uh, um, it seems to point a vast, excuse me, the, I'm having a problem with my screen, so I can't actually scroll through my notes, I apologize. Um, so um, what I want to talk about today is, is, is two things that I think really strike me about the novel um, and that really kind of strike us from the vantage point of the present. And one is the question of the representation of women um, and Arabs and the question of who gets represented and who does not get represented in the novel um, and the question of journalism as well. Um, so on the first point in terms of um, the representation of, of women and minorities, so who, who is the novel about and who is it not about? Um, so some people have asked why the novel takes place in Oran, and of course, Camus was Algerian. He had spent a good time, a good portion of his life, living in Oran, um, and he um, he wrote the plague largely from living in um, Oran. He he moved to Paris at one point while he was writing it, um, and he had recently experienced. Um, 
um, the typhus epidemic in one of the neighboring towns to Iran in a town called Lala Marnia, where um, one of his friends that he knew had gotten sick. And so he had this firsthand experience of seeing how a town um, deals with the epidemic um, and how it kind of are tackling questions about um, uh, about quarantines. Um, so he's thinking about um, the role. Uh, sorry, here we go. Sorry, now I have my notes. Um, so he's thinking about, um, you know, how how you deal with with um, how you deal with quarantine and medical practices. As you remember, there's an early point in the novel where the journalist, the character named Rambert, who comes from Paris and who um, wants to interview the doctor Rio about the living conditions of Arabs in the city, and Rio tells him, well, the conditions aren't um, very good, but he'll only agree to the interview if he can be honest about um, what's happening. And Rambert says he cannot, and so. So, can, so the character of Rhea refuses to, to have this interview. And so interestingly, this is the only time in the novel where the word Arab is used, which is striking, because if you've read the novel The Stranger, also by Camus, you know that it's also vague on this point. It's about an Arab who gets killed on the beach and who never gets named. And this is something that Camus has been critiqued for. And I'll just mention as a sidebar that there's a wonderful novel that came out a few years ago by an Algerian journalist and novelist named Kamel Daoud, called the Merceau Investigation that tries to really right Camus wrong and gives a name to the Arab that is killed. But in the plague, there's this very curious absence of representation of the Arab and Berber populations. Um, so similarly, for, for, for those of you who, who've read the novel, you know that it centers on about five main characters, all of whom are men at the center of fighting this disease. And some of them talk about women, um, but the women are virtually off scene and they barely, they're barely kind of characters at all. So you have the character Grand, who pines for this lost love and misses her, but she's very much this absent presence in his life. Again, the journalist Rambert, who's eager to leave the city and join his girlfriend in Paris, but ultimately decides to stay. And so he ends up choosing heroism over beauty because he lives uh, with his, you know, he chooses to stay in Iran and help fight the cause. Rieu, the doctor who sends his wife away just before the pandemic, which is just coincidental. She has tuberculosis. It's not because of the pandemic. But so she's basically gone from the novel um, until the end when you learn that she dies. And very meaningfully, Rieu seems far more distraught about the death of his good friend Tahu, who succumbs to the plague, you know, just at this moment when the plague is leaving the city, than he does about his wife's death. Um, and and the, the way that the female characters are described in the book, whether it's Teru talking about his own mother, Ryu's mother, who's also this kind of peripheral presence, um, or, 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 um, or uh, Ryu's wife himself, is very much as self-effacing. They're described as shadows. Um, and Teru's and Ryu's friendship is really the closest connection you see in the novel. There's this kind of profound male bonding experience that they have when Teru discloses his past. And this is something you feel very much in the final pages of the novel, where um, there were, it's sort of Camus' moment to reflect on humankind. And if you, if you read, I don't know how the English version in front of me, but in the French version, the word les hommes, men, appears in almost every single sentence. And it's sort of these um, general kind of statements of men wherever they're the same, or what you learn in a pandemic is what um, it's, you know, what we learn in a pandemic is that men, there's more to admire than to despise. So this novel Camus is telling us is very self-consciously a study of man's relationship to one another and to life. 
And what I, want, what I want to encourage is that when we think about the plague as a reflection of the human condition, we need to be thoughtful about who that does and doesn't include. And I think we need to be especially th thoughtful and conscious about it with this novel because it asks us to be thinking about the way that you chronicle history. And at a time right now when we're thinking about how we want to write our own history, this is something that the book is very much invested in. So I want to be mindful of time and just say a couple of words about the representation of journalism in the novel, and maybe we can re return to it in the Q&A. But Camus was a journalist. Um, he had written for several different newspapers in France and in Algeria. And during the war, he wrote largely for the underground communist paper called Combat. And the novel is riddled with references to journalism in the media. And you can see this really crushing indictment of the press. You know, the, the example that I mentioned earlier with Combert and whether he can talk freely about Arabs and he says no, that he, he risks censorship. Or there's this wonderful um, newspaper that they launch, which is called Le Courrier de l'Epidémie, the newspaper about the epidemic that proclaims it's going to have this scrupulous objectivity about the disease, but in the end, it just becomes you know, this, this journal at the service of capitalism that's useful just for product placement. And Camus talks quite a bunch about how you have this human urge to consume news, to get information, to learn what you can, but how much that information is often incomplete or biased. Um, and, and Camus, in his own journalistic writings, strived for honesty and transparency. Um, a month before the plague came out, it came out in June 1947, he published an article in Combat called Contagion, where he called racism a disease and he warned that the French um, in their actions and also in the way that their actions were re being represented in the, in the media were becoming dangerously close to fascism because of some of their, um, some of the ways they were talking about uh, Algeria and Madagascar. And so one of the things that I want to talk about hopefully is how Camus uses the novel as a platform for us to think through how we are using the news, what needs it's fulfilling, and maybe how it falls short and how we get information. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Um, and uh, we'll move right along now to philosophy. Shane? Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming. Plague always comes in from the outside. The word itself tells us as much. It hails from the Greek plege, which means to strike a blow. And indeed, the language of striking is rampant throughout Camus' texts, with the plague presented as the visitor who strikes the town with disease, thrashing those trapped within the city walls. The French pest, for its part, indicates infection, a contaminating of one thing by something else, namely something outside of it. It is also arguably related to the Latin pensere, which means to ground or to smash, as with a pestle. So both plague and pest denote a striking, a hitting that originates from the outside and moves in. But who or what is the plague? Most obviously, the plague is a bacterium, your Siena pestis, but it is only this in a lab and under a microscope. In the lived world described in Camus' book, the plague is first and foremost rats, who once the plague arrives are gassed in the sewers by the thousands. After the rats, it's the cats and the dogs, who are outdoor animals, animals on the outside, who are a plague, and whose deaths by makeshift firing squads are so numerous that nobody bothers to count them. Eventually, it's the citizens themselves who are plague, each of whom becoming a stranger to every other, as each becomes the potential harbinger of death to his or her neighbor. Even Ryu, the good doctor, becomes a symbol of plague as he comes to apprehend the sick from their homes, 
knocking their doors down and breaking the seal that keeps them from the outside and drawing them off to their deaths. Throughout the text, the plague is presented as the uncanny and unannounced visitor, the one coming in uninvited from the outside. Eventually, the plague is shown to be not so much the agent that brings death, such as a flea or a rat or the neighbor, but death itself, the ultimate uninvited visitor. In justifying his palliative efforts to his friend Tarot, Ryu suggests that he is, quote, fighting against creation as he found it. That is, he is attempting to correct and order the random misery of existence by submitting it to the orderings of human reason. In other words, Ryu objects not just to the death in front of him, but to the brute fact that people die. And like many physicians, he wants to put an end not just to this death, but to all death, to death as such. Parenthetically, this desire is not only foolish, as Ryu himself comes to realize, but is, strictly speaking, homicidal, insofar as it seeks to eradicate what is perhaps the most essential characteristic of humanity, namely our mortality. Indeed, if Camus' book demonstrates anything, it is that we forge and form meaning for ourselves through grappling with the reality of human death. No death, no meaning. In any case, Ryu eventually realizes the ultimate fruitlessness of his attempts to fight the plague, noting that his job is no longer to cure the sick, if it ever was, but merely to diagnose and condemn them, carrying them off, like death himself, to their deaths. One sees Ryu's acknowledgement of his own impotence in the face of the plague as his friend, Taru, succumbs to it. Quote, the human form, his friends, lacerated by the spear thrusts of the plague, was foundering under his eyes in the dark flood of the pestilence, and he could do nothing to avert the wreck. He could only stand unavailing on the shore, empty-handed and sick at heart, unarmed and helpless yet again under the onset of calamity. Unarmed and helpless yet again, une fois de plus. What is the scope of this yet again? Most immediately, it refers to the other countless victims of the outbreak whom Ryu could not save. More generally, however, this yet again refers to the blanket calamity of human dying, a blanket in which we are all swaddled the very moment that we are born. The plague, as multiple characters in the text suggest, is nothing other than, quote, the same thing over and over and over again, namely the endless, monotonous, and unaccountable suffering of existence with death as the governing limit of such suffering. Yet the plague is not simply this suffering. Rather, plague is also the inclination, the desire, and perhaps the unavoidable hope that we can put an end to such suffering, that we can rationally arrange a world that is out of order, that we will someday discover a method to the madness of nature. In other words, the plague is not so much death or suffering as it is the absurdity that consists in the tension standing between meaningless suffering and our seemingly ineluctable attempts to put an end to it through our planning, contriving, operating, bargaining, begging, praying, etc. The plague is Ryu's belief that he can save the sick from dying. It is Father Panelu's faith in a God who will justify such suffering. It is the citizenry's initial reluctance to believe in the plague and their stubborn habit of making plans for the future even while the world is burning around them. Phrased otherwise, plague is the feverish realization that there is an outside of the human mind, an outside that is unforeseeable and unreasonable, unpredictable and uncontrollable. 
plague is the, uh, the necessity of our confrontation with contingency. It is the, quote, blind human faith in the near future, a kind of obdurate optimism that wants to make plans for a future that is utterly unknowable and that will, in any case, end with death. What, then, is the cure for plague? It is certainly not the serum that Ryu assiduously and vainly administers to those infected, nor is it the many measures taken by the government of Oran to control the spread of the outbreak. These measures might stop this plague, or at least slow it down, but they will not stop plague. They will not stop the capricious universe from intruding upon and disrupting our existential plans. This point is emphasized through the figure of Ryu's wife, who is dying from an unspecified disease for the entirety of the book, probably tuberculosis, like Sarah mentioned, but it's never uh, explicitly stated. Her death is no surprise to Ryu when it finally comes, and why should it be? In response to her death, we are told that he, quote, knew that this suffering was nothing new. For many months and for the last two days, it was the self-same suffering going on and on and on. In other words, even without the plague, there would have been plague. Even without bubonic and pneumonic plague, there would have been whatever it was that killed his wife. There is no cure for death, nor for the infuriating unknowability of contingency. This point, which I take to be the point of the text, is emphasized near the end of the book by the old asthmatic, who, like Sisyphus rolling his boulder up the mountain, rolls his peas, his little green boulders, back and forth between two bowls in order to keep track of time. This character, who perhaps more than any other exemplifies the humility in the face of contingency that Camus is recommending, gives us a definitive answer to our question, what is plague? And I shall give him the last word here. Quote, ah, but there you are. All those folks are saying it was plague. We've had the plague here. You'd almost think they expect to be given a medal for it. But what does that even mean, plague? It's just life, no more than that. Thank you. Thanks, Shane. And uh, batting cleanup, uh, now that we've started baseball again, uh, maybe, maybe we're stopping it again. <laughs> uh, Tamsin Jones, religion. Thanks, and thanks Mark and Beth for organizing this. So I, I plan to talk uh, about the Christian theology of suffering, which Camus, as we know, uh, was an atheist himself, nonetheless presents uh, in this novel through the voice primarily of Father Panelu, uh, a Jesuit priest who gives two very different sermons to the town's inhabitants. I think that if you take these two sermons together, uh, they provide an excellent introduction to a range of Christian responses to the problem of suffering. In the priest's uh, original sermon, he announces the well-worn, most common biblical explanation for suffering. Namely, it is a divine punishment. As he intones, quote, calamity has come upon you, my brethren, and my brethren, you deserved it, end quote. Uh, it is a way of, this kind of suffering is a way of humbling the prideful, uh, humbling those who rest on their own laurels. And in this sense, according to the priest, the plague, he understands the plague as a kind of critique of the modern illusion of self-sufficiency and uh, ability to control one's fate, uh, as, as my colleague uh, in philosophy was just talking about. So the priest will, will, will say, um, if, you ignore, if you ignore God, uh, God will choose to ignore you. 
It's significant um, that Camus tells us that Father Penelou is a Jesuit doing research on Augustine and the African church. Um, I'll set aside the, the specificities of, of the North African Christianity, maybe for, for discussion um, in interest of time, but to talk about Augustine here for a moment, the fact that he's a, a scholar of Augustine. Um, Augustine was influenced by Neoplatonism and was very conscious of his stance against the Manichaeans and other fourth century Gnostic Christians. Um, and for that reason, Augustine refuses to allow evil any positive reality. Evil and the suffering that comes from it is understood to be simply the absence of its opposite. So uh, the absence of the good, the absence of the providence of divine grace. As the priest, as a sort of, as a scholar of Augustine, the priest takes this on and explains to his parishioners, I'm quoting again, for a long while, God gazed down on this town with eyes of compassion, but he grew weary of waiting. His eternal hope was too long deferred, and now he has turned his face away from us. And so God's light withdrawn, we walk in darkness, in the thick darkness of this plague, end quote. Thus, as a scholar of Augustine, Father Penelu makes clear his theological position, his, at least his initial theological position, that this plague is the result of God's absence or withdrawal rather than an intentional act. So, so far we see an explanation for suffering that's pretty standard both within the biblical texts and in the history of Christianity. However, by the time of the second sermon, Father Panelu shifts from what I would call this Augustinian Catholicism to what I would identify as a more Protestant um, specifically more Lutheran and even more specifically more Kierkegaardian existentialist uh, faith, where you have, there is no reason or rationality, no logic to the suffering. Suffering is not a punishment um, or the plague is not a punishment. Uh, it's simply absurd. Um, and nonetheless, one must believe, continue to choose to believe in, in, in God, have faith in God in face of this absurdity. So events occur in the novel to intervene in the priest's thinking, which I'll discuss in a moment. However, we find a hint of uh, the specific theological dilemma which causes this shift. We find a hint of this already in the first sermon. Uh, Father Panelu makes a telling mistake in his first sermon when he lumps together the evil actions of Cain, of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the Egyptian pharaoh, he lumps all those together with, uh, also with Job, all, all as having, quote, hardened their hearts against God. This is telling uh, because unlike the fratricide of Abel by Cain or the inhospitality of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah or the enslavement of the Israelites by Pharaoh, unlike all those, Job was innocent. Uh, indeed, he is called a righteous man in the eyes of the Lord. And his suffering cannot be easily explained as divine punishment. So it's a sort of seed in the first sermon that, that's a problem for uh, Father Panelu's, uh, his, his logic for why this is happening to the town. Job then brings us to the problem Father Panelu himself comes to face and confront as he begins to directly witness the suffering of the town's inhabitants, especially the suffering of innocent children. 
That is the problem of theodicy. Problem of theodicy is how one is to explain and understand the justice of God in the face of an existentially obvious injustice of the distribution of suffering, uh, something that Sarah mentioned, um, uh, the, the, in, the unequal uh, distribution of suffering where wicked prosper and the good and righteous are brought low. So when Father Panelu sees a child die horribly, uh, quote, something seemed to change in him and he gives a second sermon. And in the second sermon, he implicitly rebuts his previous teaching about suffering as divine punishment. There's no reason, no logic, no theodicy that could explain or justify this innocent child's suffering. At the same time, uh, Panelu refuses to give easy assurances. He, doesn't, he, he refuses to sort of say, oh, don't worry now, the child is up with God, happy in heaven, and you can be assured that there is some final final reality that will, that will make all of this okay. Instead, as the narrator tells us, the narrator who we find out at the end is, is the Dr. Ryu, uh, he tells us that Father Pan, I'm quoting again, he, Father Panelu, would keep faith with that great symbol of all suffering, the tortured body on the cross. He would stand fast, his back to the wall, and face honestly the terrible problem of a child's agony, end quote. So no answers, no justification, no explanation, no comfort, uh, just uh, holding steadfast or holding faithful in the face of, a, of an absurd, meaningless, unredeemed, unredeemable suffering. So here we have a kind of anti-theodicy, and I was reminded of, in the second sermon, of another great existentialist literary character um, from Dostoevsky, uh, Ivan Karamazov who also refuses any easy explanation that would justify the suffering of innocence. Again, we're told that no eternal happiness can compensate for a single moment's human suffering. However, the difference between Ivan Karamazov and Father Panelu is Ivan famously refuses his, what he calls his ticket to heaven. He, he, he gives it back to God um, in protest for such an unjust God. Um, unlike Ivan, in the second sermon, the priest instead preaches a radical acceptance of this irrational and ultimately meaningless suffering. He assents with full humil humility to not knowing and yet accepting that, quote, since it was God's will, we too should will it. Um, he chooses to believe that God was in control, chooses to believe that, it, chooses to continue to believe in God and have faith, faith even in the face of this painful absurdity. So here, rather than Dostoevsky's Ivan Karamazov, I think the template for Father Panelu is Abraham, uh, the biblical patriarch, patriarch, as he is reimagined as the knight of faith in Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, uh, the one who was willing to sacrifice his beloved son simply because God commands it of him. Um, just one quick side note. So even though Father Panelu is, um, to sort of contemporize it a little bit, even though he's preaching this radical acceptance of, of, of the disease and the suffering that comes with it, he still very explicitly uh, orders his parishioners to take precautions and follow civic orders that are, quote, wisely promulgated for the public wheel 
in the disorders of a pestilence, end quote. In other words, the priest, I think, would be wearing his face mask and social distancing in our time and would not be uh, spouting his divinely ordained freedom uh, in Walmart to infect himself and others. Um, he would not be doing that. Uh, nonetheless, when he himself does take sick, does take sick from some ambiguous ailment, not necessarily the plague, uh, he nonetheless refuses to send for the doctor and dies. I want to end with, uh, a, a, so I think you, between those two sermons, you get a very good um, range of different Christian responses uh, to suffering. But I wanted to end with just talking about um, the point in commonality between the, the pr main protagonist of the novel, um, the, the doctor Ryu, who's a, a, an atheist, and, and the, so he's the hero of the novel and, in, and, and Father Panelu somewhat his foil, where they very much disagree on a lot of their responses, but on one point um, they agree. They share one thing in common, namely the choice to uh, serve, that they, they both think they have an obligation to be present to, to bear witness to, and to serve those that are sick and dying. Um, for one of them, that's a human obligation. For the other, it's a religious obligation but both men recognize this obligation for service toward their fellow sufferers. So what I think you get in the end um, throughout the whole novel, but, but also with the um, portrayal of, by the Jesuit priest, is you get in the end a thwarting of the very human need and desire to explain or to rationalize suffering. It, you, that's thwarted. It's the suffering has no logic, has no explanation, has no meaning. It just is. Um, the best you get, as Ryu tells us, and as Penelu in his own way enacts, is the opportunity to serve. So the famous quote that uh, Ryu gives us is, the whole thing is not about heroism, it's about decency. It may seem a ridiculous idea, but the only way to fight the plague is with decency. So I think from both a theological and a non-theological perspective, you get this agreement that no meaning, simply an opportunity to be decent to one's fellow human beings. Thank you, Tamsin. Thanks to all the panelists for wonderful presentations done in terrific uh, brevity so that we can move right along. I'm going to um, uh, exercise chair's privilege and pose one question, and then we'll turn to some questions from the audience. Um, I think, Jim, when you began talking about the issue of, of illness and making meaning, uh, made me think about the different ways in which we've tried to make meaning uh, out of this book uh, and the way it makes its own meaning. There's ethnography that you mentioned, there's uh, journalism um, that makes meaning out of these things. There's uh, actually reference in, in the plague to uh, diaries of, of Taru. There is um, of course, philosophy and theology. There's the novel itself, which is a fictional making of meaning about, about all this. Um, the meaning that Camus himself uh, derives, I think, Sarah, you quote that, you, that almost uh, you know, final remark of, of, of Camus in the novel, that uh, you end up thinking that, that there's more to admire in men, in people perhaps, uh, than to despise. And so I'm going to ask, since I used to be a journalist, a journalistic question uh, of you all. Um, 
do you think that the plague that we're living through now has revealed that there's more to admire than to despise in humankind? We can go in order if you like, Tim. I think I've just been called on. Um, you have. <laughs> as an anthropologist, I'm interested in variability. And so my response needs to be a careful, well, it depends, which is often an anthropological answer. Uh, the it depends in this case is in part geographic. I think we do find much to admire about humanity's ability to rally forces, respond to onslaughts, um, save human lives, and learn in the process. Uh, and so in some places, the lessons are wonderful and wondrous. Um, in other places, they're despicable. They're um, beneath human dignity. Um, they're devoid of human dignity, and they're ugly, and they are contemptible. So my depends is an, an, a big yes. One finds much to admire and much to despise in contemporary human responses to this disease. I would only add that one of the ways that we tend to measure what is contemptible or what is virtuous is by our measure of the supreme leaders um, rather than the people. And I think that if we pay more attention, when we pay more attention to the people um, and a little less attention to the noise created by their leaders, we often find more to admire than to despise in human conditions, uh, human responses to suffering. You know, what I like about the, that line of the book is how it reveals Camus, and this seems kind of paradoxical, but it reveals his optimism about humanity. And I think there's some sense that he, um, that he's constantly grappling with, despite the sort of terrible um, sort of suffering that many of the panelists talked about that's really at the core of the book, is there's a belief that we can get through it and that there is something to kind of um, praise in the ability to deal with suffering. Um, and so I don't know if I can say whether right now in terms of kind of looking at the world, is there more to admire than despise, but I think that I could adhere to that optimism in Camus, that sense of even in despite of, this dif of difficulty, there is this sort of radical attempt to, to make good. It's human decency by a nose. <laughs> okay, I like that. I, I would just say I, I, I read that statement. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. I read that statement as um, I mean it's not exactly a compliment. I'll just say that, right? I, I mean it's it's pointing to the wretchedness of humanity uh, just as much as to its potential for decency. So I'll, I'll just say that. Tamson. I, I would echo what all of my colleagues have said. I agree with them. I would just add one thing. Um, in the myth of Sisyphus, at the end of the myth of Sisyphus, Camus has this wonderful line where he says, um, you must, we, we must, or one must, I can't remember if it's we or one, but, or what it is in the French, but one must imagine Sisyphus happy. Um, not hopeful, without hope, right? Condemned to a, a futile, absurd existence, but one must still imagine him happy. And I see, 
read that in the same way as it's maybe by the nose happy or <laughs> just a little bit, but there's a defiance to it, right? That, that is part of Camus' um, great attraction. That's a nice note from you all. Uh, personally, I'm waiting for the evidence to come in. We're still not over, <laughs> but we'll see. I hope you're all right. Beth. You have a couple there's of a lot of great questions that are coming in in the Q&A and also questions that I received in email. Um, there's a question that's related to Jim's point about disease as metaphor and Sarah's about this kind of male bonding of uh, Taru and uh, Dr. Hia, um, as well as a great question that's related um, to Europe after the Holocaust. And um, there, in the kind of male bonding scene with Taru and Ryo on the terrace, um, uh, let me see if I got this right. Um, Taru says, um, let me begin by saying I had the plague already long before I came to this town, which is tantamount to saying I'm like everybody else. And so there's a question, what is the plague there? Is it fascism? Is it evil? Is it racism? Is it anti-Semitism? Someone has raised a question. Um, what, how do we think about death and meaning after Auschwitz, after post-Holocaust? Um, so let me just interrupt for a second here because of the interest of trying to, to take a number of questions. Um, unless somebody's dying to follow up, we'll let one person answer the question uh, and then move on but you know, obviously we can have more, but, I, but this is not, you should not feel obligated everyone to, uh, to weigh in on these things. We'll, we'll try to move through quickly. So I, I can take the first part of the question, um, what, what is the plague to which Taru is referring with which he was infected, is that correct? Yeah. As I understand it, and uh, someone else please correct me if I'm wrong, um, he's really referring to, so he is striving to be uh, maybe not a, uh, um, maybe not a pacifist, but he's striving to avoid killing, avoid killing others, avoid uh, being complicit in the deaths of others. But he finds himself in a social situation uh, where that is impossible, where one is already complicit, always already complicit in the suffering and the death of others. And so this situation for him is utterly absurd, utterly intolerable despite his best efforts to live cleanly, purely, kindly, he himself is a murderer. And you know, we don't have to think too deeply to see the various ways that this is true for all of us. Um, I, don't, I don't have a cogent, I think, response to the, the second part. I'd have to think more about um, how we can talk about death and meaning after Auschwitz. Um, in, in light of this novel, but that's what I can say for the first part of the question. Thank you. Um, there are a lot of, uh, that's a huge question. There are a lot of questions coming in about uh, eccentric characters in the novel, like, and the, and um, great, um, the names like Rue means to laugh and Grand means big or tall. Why is Grand stuck on writing this sentence over and over again and then burns his manuscript? What about the man who is spitting on the cats that Taru has an aff affection for? Um, anybody want to take take that on? Why does why does Camus have these characters? I mean, I can say something. Sarah, go ahead. 
Yeah, I'll say something about the grand character, who's this this really lovely sort of um, trying to write and not being able to write and sort of trying to get things perfect. You know, he never felt happy with this novel or with any novel that he wrote. He always felt that it could be better and that it wasn't written perfectly. And I think there's something of that that desire to get it right that's in Grand. Um, but his eccentric characters, I mean, those traverse his novels. You know, he's really kind of keen on that sort of um, sort of the detail about various, um, you know, eccentric people and sort of like giving like a bird's eye. And one of the things that I really kind of admire about his writing is how he can sort of give you this very ironic um, glance at a particular character while also making these sort of general commentaries about human nature. And I think he can kind of hone in and zoom out in a very effective way. Yeah, you don't feel that he's just, you know, sort of writing a philosophical novel about, of ideas that he, he loves people. Uh, there's some other questions, really interesting questions coming in, a series of questions about what are the lessons of the plague for our current moment of COVID? I mean, I think Sarah's point about uh, 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 journalism is one um, and source news sources and um, information, the distribution of information is, is one of the things that, and the, and the uh, uh, being a little bit um, uh, wanting to be careful about sources of information, being accurate. Um, I, I think the more fundamental one is is the one about decency. Uh, it's the, back to the point we were talking about earlier. Um, decency, and also the how what um, Shane was talking about with the inner and outer, who's in, who's out. It's it's always an opportunity to pay uh, very close attention to who we're um, border border patrols and border crossings. I I've I've. Done, I've moved from one country to another in the last month uh, temporarily and quarantined myself and just the feel myself now as as someone coming from a hot spot to coming to a relatively cold spot in the global pandemic just how how much hostility there is at right and and sort of figuring out um, constantly having to tell people we've been quarantined, <laughs> you know, we're safe. Um, so I think another, um, a pandemic is always an opportunity to uh, critically evaluate the ways in which we, um, other people, and, 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 and say who's in, who's out, and what that means in a different way uh, is really fascinating. Um, it's especially fascinating from the American perspective. And, and then the final thing I would say is uh, that the novel brings up that is per pertinent for now is the way in which um, who's affected the, in the inequity of how the suffering is distributed, um, where it hits, who it hits, um, and who, who's relatively immune from it as well. Thanks. You know, I would add, and I, I think your point, Sarah, about how the allegory has dropped away, how it seemed to people after World War II to be about World War II, but that in the midst of this pandemic, what I found so striking reading the novel again, you know, in, in March, and, and um, was really how, how good it is on plague, I mean, on, on going through this experience. And in that sense, I mean, um, you really have the feeling that Camus wanted to get it right. 
even if his ethnography isn't perfect, um, that 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 there's a an, you know that this is not about a story about uh, you know the governors of the town about the the political authorities. It's, it's really an effort to sort of see how this thing plays out from a medical stamp, from a doctor's standpoint. I mean, that's the that's where he grounds this. And um, in that sense, I mean, I think I think people should read the book as an really. I mean, and I think that our experience of it is it's it's so much about an actual disease event. At least that was my sense. All right, I think we have time for one more question and then, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll wrap this sucker up. I guess uh, the, there are still a lot of questions, but someone asked a question about um, love in um, uh, the role of love in the novel. And um, maybe that Camus has been kind of uh, derided as too sentimental of an existentialist. Uh, does anyone want to want to take that on? I'm not going to take the point on about sentimentality. I I think that this message is about um, fraternité um, and and the importance of collegiality, the importance of building bridges to other people, of making links across to other humans. It's not about individual freedom. It's about the group. It's about the ability of the individual to see the humanity of the rest of the group and to support that and join with it. That's how we overcome the implacable external evil. And that for me is what public health is all about. We unfortunately live in a country in which we haven't done that very well, where it's the health of the individual that holds sway rather than the health of the group. And the dramatic inequities in the distribution of this present disease is just the latest iteration of the dramatic inequities that have come in every disease that's come into this country in the last 150 years. So it, the message for me isn't kind of mere sentimentality at all. It's um, a powerful message about our role as fellow humans trying to make things better and trying to draw connections across these chasms that separate us in the face of so many obstacles and yet going on and going on and going on and trying and trying and trying. That seems like on which to end. Thank you, Jim. Thanks again to the panelists and I'll toss the ball back to Beth for the last word. Thank you all so much. Uh, if you um, have more questions, you could feel free to email them to me and I can post them uh, to our panelists who may or may not have a chance to answer. But this uh, will, has also been recorded. So if you know someone who missed today, you can let them know that they can still watch it. Thank you all so much for joining us and for your excellent questions.